0: his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The word of the Lord. Okay, good morning. I was asked to, just, to give just a brief uh, reminder. Hopefully you saw this in the email from uh, last week. We're in the Lenten season and we produced a Lenten devotional guide to go along with the Friday fast. So if you uh, did not get the Lenten guide or you want a print copy, you can grab them on the uh, counters out here. So make sure you uh, grab one of those uh, if you are observing Lent with us. Okay, so we are continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New, the Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World, and we're following the overarching storyline of the Bible, how the Bible comes together to tell a single story, how God is fixing the world, and He is making all things new. He is healing the world. So last week, we looked at the uh, story of Abraham and Abraham's covenant, as an important kind of element of this overall story. And we looked at how God credited saving righteousness to Abraham in advance of the big down payment, the big payment of cosmic righteousness that God will bring at the end of the story of the whole Bible when he fully and finally heals the world, and how that story of Abraham is our story as well, and God credits us righteousness in advance as well. So if you've been tracking along with our sermon series maybe you've been doing the Bible reading plan that we put out. And if you have, you likely came this morning expecting me to continue with the story of Abraham on into Genesis 22, which probably is the next big moment of Abraham's life. And if you're familiar with Abraham's life, you'll know that in Genesis 22, Abraham is told by God to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, which of course is crazy, just for anybody, but it's also crazy because Isaac was Abraham's righteousness, as we saw last week. Ab- Isaac was the deliverance that God gave to Abraham, and now God was asking Abraham to give him up. So come back next week, because we're going to find out what happens with that, because we're not preaching about that today. That was my plan. But as I was writing out the sermon, I was putting together some contextual comments to get into Genesis 22. And the contextual comments, they grew and they grew. And once I got going, I couldn't get the cows back in the barn. And uh, it grew into a whole sermon, so I just decided to preach it as the sermon. So we're going to postpone Genesis 22 for next week. We're going to look a bit more at the story of Abraham, particularly the story of Abraham through the lens of the Apostle Paul, as he's talking about in Romans chapter 4. And last week, we looked at kind of the more end of chapter 4. This week, we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 4, sticking with the story of Abraham. And the main thing I want us to see as we look again at the story of Abraham this week is the gracious nature of God's righteous deliverance the gracious nature of God's righteous deliverance. Last week's sermon, as we looked at Abraham through the lens of the Apostle Paul, we emphasized the timing of God's righteousness, the timing of it that we can lay hold of it in the present by faith. But this week, I want to emphasize not so much the timing of God's righteousness, but the means by which we encounter God's righteousness by grace through faith. So not the timing of God's righteousness, the means of God's righteousness. The apostle Paul learned to read the Abraham story through the lens of Paul's own encounter with Jesus. So we're going to actually be weaving together two stories here this morning. We're going to kind of stick in the Abraham story, but we're going to see Paul's story as well. Because as Paul encountered Jesus, it opened up a whole paradigm for him about how to, how to read the righteousness of God and to read Abraham's story. So we're going to look at Paul's story, Abraham's story, how these converge, and then we're going to bring in a third story, and that's your story, and it's my story. We're going to bring all these stories together. So if you're a Christian this morning, I invite you to listen closely to how Paul frames up and understands the implications of Abraham's story, how he brings together the relationship between faith, covenant keeping and good works, sin, God's righteous deliverance, how all of these come together against the backdrop of his story, Abraham's story, and our story. All of this is so basic to the Christian life. So maybe some of this won't be new, but it's so easy to lose track of and forget. So I want to make sure we've got this. And then if you're not a Christian this morning, and I know that some of you are not Christians this morning. We're glad that you're here. Or you're still trying to figure out whether you want to become a Christian, trying to make sense of Christianity. Perhaps you're thinking about becoming a Christian. I invite you to listen especially closely because really this sermon has your name written all over it this morning. And so uh, I'm glad that you're here. And I think God has a word in particular for you. Okay, so by way of review, before we jump into Romans 4, I want to touch a little bit more deeply on something that was part of last week's sermon but I didn't spend as much time on, and this is this idea of righteousness as understood in the Scriptures. As I noted last week, we, we tend to think of the term righteousness as a synonym for morality. So if I were to say so-and-so is righteous, we would think, oh, that means they're like they're a good moral person. If we say that God is righteous, sometimes we think, well, that means that God is like the supreme moral being. He never makes any mistakes or does anything that's sinful. And we think of righteousness kind of fundamentally as kind of like ethical, moral kind of rectitude. But in the scriptures, righteousness is fundamentally understood as faithfulness to one's covenantal obligations. So I don't just, I said that last week, but I want to just unpack it a bit more because it's going to really come into force, I think, as we begin to look at Paul's comments. In the ancient world, there were either formal or informal covenantal agreements between rulers and their subjects, or kind of really almost in any kind of hierarchical hierarchical relationship. So for example, the king was expected to provide security, administer justice, protect the innocent, punish evil, and protect his subjects from outside invasion from like other kings or forces. And when the king was doing what a good king does, he was therefore acting or said to be acting righteously, So for instance, if you lived in a kingdom and you were on the outskirts of the kingdom in some little village and some neighboring kingdom was making incursions in and and, uh, robbing you or there was a band of outlaws that were coming in and robbing you, you would want and would call upon your king to bring righteousness, to bring his righteousness to your situation and ride to your rescue. The righteousness of the king's subjects, on the other hand, takes a little bit of a different shape. The king's subjects were covenantally obligated to honor the king's laws, serve in the king's army when necessary, pay the king's taxes as required. So when the subjects of a kingdom were faithfully doing the things that good subjects do, the subjects were said to be acting righteously. And this is a bit of why sometimes we equate righteousness with morality or rule-keeping, because a good subject of a king does follow the king's rules. That's part of a subject's righteousness. So in summary, when the person at the top of a covenantal relationship is said to be acting righteously, then that means that they are properly establishing and safeguarding a context for the flourishing of the folks that are under their care. When the person at the bottom of a covenantal relationship is said to be acting righteously, then that means that they are being obedient and faithful to the one that is watching over them. All right? So we have righteousness of kings or rulers, righteousness of subjects. Both can be righteous. Their righteousness is worked out a little bit differently. They're not exactly the same thing. It doesn't mean that just both are obeying moral laws, right? But it means that both are doing their job in the covenantal relationship properly. All right, so on to Romans 4, which has already been read for us. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 2, and 3 has been making an argument about how we get God's righteousness. How do we access this righteousness that God is the king over all the world brings to his creation. How do we get this righteousness? That he has been arguing in chapters one, two, and three that we get the righteousness of God through faith. And that's why he brings in the story of Abraham. So let's pick up the point that he has made, and he's going to use Abraham as the example to prove his point that we get the righteousness of God by faith. So uh, chapter four, verse one, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Okay, now let me just pause us here. I want to focus in on this word justified. This is a word that I don't think we've gotten to uh, in the sermon series yet, but it shows up all over Paul's writings, in particular in Romans, and it's elsewhere in the Bible as well. The underlying Greek term that we typically translate justified, now follow me on this little grammar here, is the verbal form of the noun that we typically translate righteous, right? So justified and righteous are coming from the same word underneath. But we don't have in English a term righteous We have justify. So then when we translate righteous we put it in as justify, but it can mask a little bit that righteous is the underlying term in both of these uh, translations, right? So to be justified is connected to righteousness. It is to be righteous right? So when a king or a ruler justified or righteous you, that meant that he brought his righteousness to bear favorably in your life, and it was a good thing. You wanted the king to righteousify you, to bring his covenantal commitments to bear in your life to make sure that you were being taken care of. It was a good thing. Now, the king could righteous you in all sorts of ways, right? Because in the... In the covenantal relationship, there were all sorts of things that a subject would need from the king. So the king could righteous you by protecting you, as we used in the example, delivering you from robbers or from an opposing king that's coming to invade you and take away your property. He could righteous you by deciding in your favor in a lawsuit. So your neighbor steals your donkey. You take your donkey to the king, and you say, my neighbor, he stole my donkey. There's a bunch of, you know, data presented and and proofs. And then the king says, ah, he has stolen your donkey. He righteous-fies you, right? He brings righteousness to your situation by making sure you get your donkey back. Or he could deliver you from a trial, perhaps a famine, so he brings grain, or he brings water to your village, or by levying fair and reasonable taxes, and not ex- uh, extorting you taxwise. So the bottom line is that the king can righteous you in any number of ways, and that when you were righteous by the king, you were made a partaker of his redemptive power and his righteousness. He used his kingly position to bear in your life to deliver you and to help you and to assist you. Paul is bringing in the example of Abraham here in chapter 4 because he wants to challenge people's assumptions about how we become partakers of God's redemptive righteousness. Okay, now why does he have to challenge some assumptions? What were these assumptions about how you would get God's redemptive righteousness? Well, in the ancient world, the way you got your king to be righteous to you was when you were righteous towards the king. That was the covenantal agreement. God or the king would be righteous to you insofar as you were righteous. Back to the king. But if you rebelled against him, or disturbed the peace of his kingdom, or failed to adhere to the covenantal obligations, then you were not behaving according to the terms of the covenant, and you were setting yourself up to get his wrath and his punishment. So flip over in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 11. This isn't a passage that was read for us, but I want to show this idea of righteousness here out of Isaiah chapter 11. And uh, we often say when we're reading Scripture that the passage is found in your pew Bible on page so-and-so. In this case, it's 575. But I should say to all my good folks in the balcony, you have a different pew Bible than the folks on the floor. So when we say it's on page 575, that's for you people on the floor, you people in the balcony, I have no idea what uh, <laughs> page uh, Isaiah 11 is on in your pew Bible, but use the index in the front and you will find it or Google it on your phone and you'll find it. But Isaiah chapter 11, verses one through eight, in Isaiah 11, one through eight, we have Isaiah has given us a vision now of when God, in the end, will will bring his righteousness fully to the world and he will straighten everything out. He'll make all things new, just like our sermon series is heading towards. And he's going to do it through Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah doesn't have the name of Jesus here, but Isaiah is seeing in a vision the person, Jesus Christ, coming to make all things new and to straighten everything out and to bring God's righteousness okay so that's what's going on here in Isaiah 5 so follow our Isaiah 11 so follow along here there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse Jesse's the father of David David is the great king and then Jesus ultimately is the son of David the king so this is a connection back to the royalty of the Messiah there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge, and this term judge doesn't mean uh, just passing judgment as we think about it, but he shall not rule. He shall not rule or judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath, or the spirit, the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So this Messiah figure, Jesus at the end, he will come with righteousness. And in his righteousness, he will take care of the poor and the meek who are not being treated properly. He will come and he will rule over them with righteousness. He will bring his righteousness, which means then that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he will kill with his breath the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Faithfulness. So he's going to bring righteousness and faithfulness, right? And so coming then from Paul's perspective as a good Jew, the way that the Jewish people typically understood their covenantal relationship with God was that God would be righteous towards them as long as they were righteous towards him. And what being righteous towards God meant then was adhering to the covenantal obligations that God had clearly spelled out with his people through the prophet Moses. So we're going to get to Moses in a, about a month or so, and we're going to find that God comes with some very detailed covenantal obligations. We read about those in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. right? He comes with some clear uh, covenantal obligations. And it, the Jews felt like if we're following the covenantal obligations, God will be righteous to us. If we don't follow the covenantal obligations, God is not going to be righteous to us. We're going to get slain by the the rod of his mouth and by uh, the breath uh, of his lips. Okay, and there's nothing surprising here in this perspective. This is just how every kingdom and covenantal structure in the world worked. So king subject employer, employee, master, servant, and so forth. and any kind of hierarchical relationship, this is typically how the relationships work. But here's the thing. That customary covenantal arrangement turned out not to be true. Turned out it wasn't true in Paul's life. So turn back to Romans 4. We get back. Here into Paul's story. Actually, you're not going to go to Romans 4. Pretend I didn't say that. Go to Acts 9. We're still going to Paul's story, but we're going to Paul's story in Acts 9. And here's where we have to encounter Paul's story. Prior to coming, to becoming Paul the apostle, that we all know and love, Paul believed himself to be Paul, the faithful covenantal member of God's kingdom. A righteous subject of God the King. Paul wasn't just a faithful Jew. He wasn't just your average faithful Jew kind of adhering to the Mosaic covenantal stipulations. He was a faithful Pharisee. And if you know anything about the Pharisees, the Pharisees back in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, the days of the apostles, the Pharisees were basically professional covenant keepers. Their job was understand the terms of the covenant and to keep covenant, not only on their behalf, but really on behalf of the nation. Paul was immensely learned in the Jewish law, and he knew the covenantal obligations of the Mosaic law inside and out. Pauline scholars even suspect that Paul maybe have memorized the entire Old Testament. So he was not playing when it came to understanding and to trying to live out the covenant obligations. But it turned out that he didn't know the covenantal laws as he thought. Truth be told, he actually hadn't been serving God at all, but actually was in rebellion against God's appointed king and deliverer. This one we read about in Isaiah 11, God had sent him already. And Paul didn't believe it was him. And Paul was actively resisting God's plan of redemption and salvation. God was working against the king. Indeed, he was actively killing and imprisoning the people who belonged to the king. So now in Isaiah 9, we can pick up the story of the apostle Paul before he becomes apostle Paul. His name here is Saul, and so it's the same figure, just with a different name. But look here in verse 9. I'm going to read this for us. You follow along. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he had just, if you read in chapter 8, he had been instrumental and perhaps overseeing the stoning of Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, the first martyr of the church. So Paul is just white-hot with fury against God and his king, and he has stoned, helped to stone Stephen, and he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he's been blinded by Jesus. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Paul, in this moment, had the awful realization That despite all of his efforts, he actually was on the wrong side of the covenantal obligations. In that terrifying moment, he realized that he had joined league with the king's enemies and was actively supporting those who had crucified and killed the king. And oh, just imagine now that sinking feeling of doom when he realized in that moment that Jesus was not dead after all, but that he was actually the king just as he claimed and that he was alive and he was right there. I mean, just imagine that moment. You've been in open rebellion against the king and now he has come. Paul falls to the ground in terror and he is no doubt certain that he is a goner. He had failed to keep covenant. He had failed to be righteous. And what do you think he thought about for those three days in the dark? What was in his mind for those three days? blinded by Jesus, neither eating nor drinking. Jesus had sent him into the city without telling him what he was going to do with him. And for three days, Paul had to sit in the dark. And what do you think happened? Now, if you know the story of the Apostle Paul, you know what happened. If you don't know the story of the Apostle Paul, or even if you do, what do you think should have happened? What should have happened to Paul? To use the language of Isaiah 11, Paul should have been struck down by the rod of Christ's mouth and killed by his breath. That's what should have happened to him. But he wasn't. It's the amazing thing. He wasn't. Instead, Jesus graciously revealed himself to Paul, forgave him, and called him into his service. Look, let's continue reading here in Acts chapter 9, picking up in verse 10 where we left off. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. He's no stranger to me, Lord. How much evil he has done your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I mean, Ananias was like, okay, just to be clear on this, Lord. Like, I'm going to go to, you want me to go to him? But like, he's he's throwing your people in prison, and I'm one of your people, so he's not sure this is a good idea. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit, the holy breath. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and he was baptized. And Taking food, he was strengthened. Paul, in that moment, encountered God's redemptive righteousness in Christ while actually on a mission to persecute Christ and his people. And this whole experience sent Paul into an existential and theological tailspin. Not only had he been wrong about Jesus, I mean, that was like problem number one. He had been wrong about Jesus. But he also apparently now realizes he realizes he has been wrong about how one became righteous. He had been certain that one became righteous by faithfully keeping the covenant. But Paul most certainly had not been keeping the covenant. He had actually been trying to destroy the covenant, and yet God hadn't struck him down. God had remarkably, beyond hope or expectation, granted Paul a participation in God's saving, righteous deliverance. God had righteous-fied him even though he wasn't righteous. This is mind-blowing to Paul. It's crazy to him. And from this experience and this realization came a remarkable insight for Paul that infused all of his letters and lit the church on fire. Namely, the idea that God not only righteous the covenant keepers, but He also righteous the covenant breakers. And what crazy good news that was for all the covenant breakers. What scandalous news it was! In fact, Paul got himself in lots of trouble because he preached this message: that you could be righteous while still being a covenant breaker. It got him stoned, and ultimately it got him killed. This is the message that he preached, and that's the point he is pressing toward in Romans 4 and why he uses the example of Abraham. So now back to Romans 4. Abraham wasn't a covenant keeper when he was called. He was just a wanderer upon the earth, kicked abroad from Babel, just like all the other wanderers. Indeed, Paul is going to make this point. Abraham is born 400 years before the covenant, this covenant of Moses that everyone in Moses' day or in in Paul's day was so bent on paying attention to. Abraham didn't even have that covenant, so he couldn't even be a covenant keeper. And somehow he got God's righteousness apart from keeping covenant. And he got it, Paul says, through faith. Abraham didn't enter into God's righteousness by covenant keeping but by faith. And then Abraham wasn't the only one. Paul reaches for another example from the Old Testament. So we can look here at chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Maybe, maybe you know this story. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies or righteousifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David, King David, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then to quote from the Psalms, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. If you know anything about the story of David, David, you you think Abraham getting righteousness apart from covenant keeping was a big deal. David got righteousness apart from covenant keeping. In fact, he committed two capital offenses, adultery, And then he killed multiple people to try to cover up the adultery. And he should have expected, just like Paul, to receive only the condemnation of God. But God came to him and gave him blessing or gave him righteousness. He credited righteousness to him him, apart from his deeds and his covenant keeping. And Paul's whole purpose in using Abraham's example and then also David's example is to show that we don't get God's righteousness by covenant-keeping. We get it by faith in the promise of God. We don't first have to become covenant-keepers in order to get God to keep covenant with us. When we get God's righteousness, we get God's righteousness right now by believing the promise of God, even if we haven't been keeping covenant. All right, now let me draw out two points of application for our two different groups of people. I want to talk first to those on the wrong side of the covenant, who are outside of the covenant, as it were. People like Abraham, Paul, and David, before they met Christ. And then I've got a word of application for those who are already in the covenant. All right, so first, those that are outside the covenant, on the wrong side of the covenant. We could maybe call them covenant breakers. We are, all of us, creatures of God living under his cosmic and global rule. He is the great king. And he has appointed a king, his son Jesus, who is the one over whom, or who rules over the entire world. And whether we acknowledge his lordship or not, he is the one with whom we have to do. He is the one with whom we must give our righteousness. And the fact is that we aren't great covenant keepers. Even the ancient pagan philosopher Seneca once said, men are born for virtue, but not with virtue. And that is true. Even the pagans get it right sometimes. (laughs) Yet the good news is that God justifies, He righteous covenant breakers when we come to Him in faith. And some of you really need to hear the truth of that message this morning. Some of you really need to hear the truth of that message this morning. Because truth be told, you are a terrible covenant keeper. And I'm not just trying to pick on you. I don't even know who you are. I don't have anyone in mind. But I know that there are some of you out there that are just terrible covenant keepers. You're below average even, right? So you look at your life, you compare it to, like, other people, and you're like, I'm, like, a few steps down. Perhaps you're even like, it's amazing that I'm in church at all this morning. Or maybe you're a sneaky covenant breaker, looking one way on Sunday and another way during the week. And no one knows really the full extent to which you break covenant on a regular basis. And maybe you're even somewhere in the ballpark of the Apostle Paul out-persecuting Christ territory, covenant breaker. And maybe you haven't just messed up a few things here and there. Perhaps like Paul or David, you have Serious blood on your hands that you cannot wash off. Infidelity your spouse doesn't know about. Things you've stolen from work, a hateful, spiteful spirit that you have unleashed without remorse on coworkers or family members or a spouse or friends, people you used to call friends. Or maybe it's not one big ruinous sin. Instead, maybe it's just a thousand little wrong choices that have all added up. Death by a thousand paper cuts, and they have left you slouched over and going nowhere. And you know in your heart sitting in the dark like Paul did those three days, you know in your heart that you, what you really deserve is the rod of a righteous covenant-keeping God. You know that what you deserve is the breath of Christ's mouth to come and slay the wicked. The good news is that God is going to come to the rescue and deliver the world that he has made. He's going to vanquish all the enemies of his people. He's going to rid the world of everything that corrupts the creation he loves. But maybe that actually isn't good news for you today. Because you know that you're part of the problem. And that when God comes in righteousness, it won't be for your benefit. You don't have a fly in the ointment. You are the fly in the ointment. But that's where Paul's message of grace needs to intersect your life. Do you see this morning that there is grace enough for you? That God isn't treating you as your sins deserve? Do you see That you don't have to be good enough to merit God's righteous deliverance. You don't have to figure out how to clean yourself up, put yourself back in shape to merit God's righteous deliverance in your life. You don't have to rebuild or repair the covenant that you have broken in order to get God to be righteous to you. In fact, that's the whole point of the gospel. The very thing we need from God is his redemptive righteousness precisely, precisely because we need his redemptive righteousness to heal us and to redeem us and to make us righteous. We saw last week, we spent a lot of time on this, but we come into the world like Abraham when he encountered God, dead in our soul, dying in our bodies without life or hope in the world. That's all of us. What we need is new life. And that's what God's righteousness is. His righteous deliverance into our lives is a participation in the new life of God through his son, Jesus Christ. That was Paul's story. He had messed up royally, but God sent the prophet Ananias to lay hands on him and pray for him and declare to him the forgiveness of sins. And then put the checkbook away, there's more because not only did he get the forgiveness of sins, he then received the holy breath of Christ. In Isaiah Isaiah 11, the holy breath of Christ came as judgment to the wicked. And Paul should have gotten the holy breath of Christ as judgment. But the holy breath of Christ, the Holy Spirit of Christ, did not come to Paul as judgment, but as new life. His eyes were opened, and then I love how this says it in in Acts 9, he rose up, he was raised up, and was baptized, and he formally entered into the community of faith. So listen to me today, if you... Are on the wrong side of the covenant. You may not be able to get baptized today. We don't have the tank full of water today. But you can receive the Holy Spirit today in anticipation of your baptism. And it's time for some of you. It's time. For some of you, you have tarried for too long. The hour is late. I don't know how much more time you will have. God is long suffering and he is patient. He is slow to anger, he says, and abounds in loving kindness. He tarries while you tarry, the scripture says, because he wants all to come to repentance. But he won't tarry forever. He loves the world too much to perpetually hold back his righteousness because the world needs the deliverance that he will bring. Now is the day of salvation. I don't know about tomorrow. You don't know about tomorrow. Give your life to the Lord today in this moment. If you are outside the covenant of faith, have never laid hold of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus, And I encourage you to do so even today. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 9 that if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. To believe and to confess. These are the means by which we receive the righteous, redemptive work of God in our lives. Let me encourage you now. The quietness of your heart through prayer. Confess your brokenness before God. Acknowledge that you are a covenant breaker. Acknowledge that you need the righteousness that he gives you through his son. Ask God for the free and gracious gift of his redemptive righteousness and believe that he grants it to you. Even right now, This morning, the breath of Christ can fall upon your life redemptively and bring new life. He will grant new life and forgiveness and a fresh start to you right now through faith, just like he did for Abraham and David and Paul. Now, let me say a word to those that have already done that. You've already given your life to Christ. You're already in the covenant, as it were. Remember that how you started is how you continue. How you start is how you continue. Even when we've been brought into God's covenant through faith in Christ, we don't always keep it very well. And this is the reality. Am I the only one? Are there a few people out there that don't always keep it? One or two of you with me. And when we fail to keep the covenant as we should, when we're not righteous towards God as we should be, we go back to where we began. We believe afresh that we have God's righteousness apart from our righteousness. And we also believe that God's righteousness is the very thing that makes us righteous, And that can be so easy to forget, because if we're not careful, we can begin to think that the only thing we get from God is mercy, or that God's righteousness consists only in mercy, him overlooking our mess-ups. And so we think of the Christian life like this. I'm a covenant breaker. I'm outside the covenant. I'm I'm at odds with the king. I recognize that. So I confess my sin to God. I say that I'm sorry, and I acknowledge my brokenness, and then God forgives me. And now I'm going to try really hard to be a good covenant keeper. And so I try really hard, but I can't do it. So then I come back to God and I say, hey, I'm sorry. I messed up again. And I try really hard some more. And he just, I, I try really hard. I mess up. He forgives me. I try even harder. I mess up. He forgives me. I just keep trying hard. That's all really there is to the Christian life. God just forgives you, and you try really hard. That is not the Christian life. That is not the Christian life. We need more from God than just the forgiveness of our sins. We need the full weight of his righteousness to come into our lives, to not just forgive us of what we've messed up, but to actually make us to be good covenant keepers. God's righteousness is so much more than mercy. It is merciful. His righteousness is merciful, to be sure. But it is even more so healing righteousness and delivering righteousness. It is an all things new righteousness. It is a healing of the world righteousness. Being a Christian doesn't simply mean that you have acknowledged yourself to be a covenant breaker, have received God's forgiveness, and now are trying really hard to be a good covenant keeper. Being a Christian isn't God forgives you and you try really hard. Being a Christian is God forgives you and then begins to work his righteousness in you transforming you and making you into the righteous person you should have been all along. His righteousness, his deliverance in your life, is the basis and the power of your righteousness, of your faithfulness back to him. Trust in God's delivering righteousness to grow you as a Christian just as much as you trusted in God's righteousness to make you a Christian. We begin, as we start, we start as we begin. I'm sorry, I messed that up. That was such a good moment there, and I, and I, and I, <laughs> I messed it up. How we start is how we continue. How we start is how we continue. He is living and active in your life, even when you can't see it. And I think this is true so much for our lives, right? Is we're striving after God. We're trying to be good covenant keepers. Sometimes the problems are like outside of us. There are obstacles that we need his righteousness to come into and to deliver us from these external problems. Sometimes the problems, the ones that hurt the most, are inside of us. And we need his righteousness to come inside of us and to, to change us and to make us different. And sometimes it just seems like it's not coming in the ways that we would want it to come. We find ourselves like Abraham having received the promise of God waiting for his righteousness to come. His righteousness is present with us even right now, even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it. It is now working. And we have to believe it in faith even when times are hard, especially when times are hard, that he is busy working his righteousness on our behalf. He has not forgotten us. And his righteousness will not fail us. And that's the thing we need to hold on to. So whether you are not a Christian this morning or whether you are a Christian this morning, it's really the same message. We need the righteousness of God in our lives. And we get the righteousness of God through faith and belief in the promises of God, not through trying to gin up our own kind of righteousness, which we can't do. We get righteousness inside of us because God's righteousness has been put upon us and because he's delivering us. So let's look to God for his righteousness and his deliverance in our lives. Amen? Amen. God, thank you that you sent Jesus who is for us our righteousness. He is the righteousness that you have sent. He is the deliverance that you have sent. He is the one who brings life to us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, making a mess of things, you sent Jesus into our lives and you have redeemed us. You have poured out your breath upon us by your spirit. You are making us new. You have forgiven us all of our sins. God, help us to keep looking to you in faith that your promises are true. And God, I pray for any that are here this morning. I know there must be one or two or more that have not yet yielded themselves to you. They have not come to you for righteousness are trying to cobble together their own deliverance from other means, trying to save themselves even perhaps. But I pray that they would come to you for righteousness, that they would recognize that you offer grace freely, and that you will give it to them now if they come to you just in repentance and faith. God, work your work by your spirit. Open the eyes of some today that they might see not just of their need for you, but to see how you come to them in love. God, we do love you. We thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.